There's so much talk right now about artificial intelligence. Every business has some story about how they're using artificial intelligence to help them get smarter and run better and all that good stuff. Our thing was artificial intelligence is great, but let's use human intelligence. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. Each week, we take a deep dive into a singular lightbulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. I'm your host, Donna Laughlin. Nearly 20 years ago, I launched a public relations firm with the sole purpose of helping visionaries tell their stories to the world. Now, two decades later, I want to share those stories and more with you. This podcast takes you on a journey before it happened with the innovators who imagine and are still imagining the future. Ever since I was a child, I was curious about so many things. I spent hours in the garage at science fairs, sifting through popular science, popular mechanics, and pretty much any journal I could get my hands on, exploring and discovering how things work. From transportation and AI to just about anything you can put in your home, office, or pocket. On this show, you'll hear from the innovators themselves as they tell their stories of how they brought those visions to life. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. My guest today is Mike Fitzsimmons, co-founder and CEO of Crosscheck, a cloud-based service that has applied both artificial and human intelligence to completely reinvent the traditional employee reference check. If you've ever managed a team, chances are you've had to hire people. And if you've ever had to hire people, chances are you've often hired the wrong people. Crosscheck's mission is to better match companies and talent through what it calls human intelligence hiring. This basically means Crosscheck's platform leverages insights collected from people you know and work with and converts it to data. The data is then stored in the cloud, guaranteeing privacy while giving employers an opportunity to examine candidates but both minimizing bias and protecting their information. Since its launch in 2019, Crosscheck has truly revolutionized the art of hiring. And Mike says the idea would never have occurred to him if he had been better at hiring himself. Mike Fitzsimmons was born in Nashville, Tennessee. He was the youngest of four siblings and the only one in his family to be born in the United States. His father was from Ireland, his mother was Scottish, and they brought the family to the States in the 1970s seeking opportunity. Mike's father answered a black and white ad and got a job as a management consultant. And though the family first settled in Selma, Alabama, they would move around quite a bit for most of Mike's childhood. Selma became Nashville, Nashville became Boston, then Boston became Richmond, Virginia. Mike credits that geographic diversity with sparking his curiosity about the world around him. His first business venture came when he was eight years old, gathering berries from a nearby orchard and selling them door to door. He later started his own neighborhood landscaping business, but his interest in working made him a rather indifferent student. He excelled in sports and always had an angle on some kind of new business but school was a challenge. I had a hard time sitting in class and focusing and that wasn't my thing, but I could show up and do well on the standardized tests and 
grinding my way through. I went and got a BA in economics from a college called Hamden Sydney College in Virginia, where I was invited to come play soccer as well. I got in and out in four years, and that was a small school, which was right for me. I would have probably gotten distracted and maybe not made it all the way through if I'd gone somewhere else. It was a liberal arts school, and one of the things, the programs that we had there was English rhetoric, and you literally had to take this pretty intense English rhetoric program each year that you were there, and you couldn't graduate until you completed a rhetoric exam, which many people would have to take several times before they finally finished it. So at the time, it felt really old school. I wanted to go learn computer stuff, and I wanted to learn more diverse finance and business-related courses. I was an econ major, which was relatively dry content, but it was the closest content I could get to kind of business-related stuff. But that rhetoric class, and I think about now and my communication skills and just even written communication, just how absolutely important it is in this modern age and how still, I think, overlooked by so many of us and so many of our institutions, frankly, that I absolutely take that away as probably one of the greatest things. A little counterintuitive, one of the greatest things that I picked up from my, my college experience, there wasn't a particular professor that necessarily resonated with the program itself and the intensity of the program and commitment to it, for sure, was something that I registered with me. So now you're in college and you have your the roots of your preview of your career. You're on the college soccer team? For one year. So you become very American at this point? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you get out of college, you go to Circuit City. What was your position with Circuit City? So one of the things I had figured out early was that I like to work. I like to make money and provide for myself and all that good stuff. And so I started working at Circuit City during my freshman year of college summer. So when I came home from that summer, I started working in a call center that they had. And then I worked at my holiday break. And then I worked the next summer and the next summer. And for those four years during college, I was always working there in various capacities. And I did a whole bunch of things around primarily call center related work. So this was like debt collection. And that was the first group that I was part of. Circuit City had their own credit cards. So this was like, you're calling outbound calling to get people to pay their credit card bill and that sort of thing. And then I was fortunate just through that experience that they offered me a full-time position when I left college to go work in a more corporate role opening up a new call center. They were moving out to Phoenix to open up a large new call center and they needed a business analyst to go and provide that analytical support. So that was my that was my job. I signed up immediately and I think, you know, a few weeks after college I was on my way to Phoenix to go open up a call center. <laughs> so that was it. That was before everything started being offshore. Yeah, you know, similar time. Phoenix was the offshore to be honest. <laughs> you know, like at that time there was a lot of yeah, people were figuring out these other markets you could go to. Salt Lake City was hot then. Phoenix, there was a handful of them that were lower cost of living for sure. Markets where a lot of U.S. companies were looking to go and plant those things. So it was probably a bit before the off the, the real offshore stuff kicked in, but a similar way of thinking. You know, get the rather than do that in Richmond, Virginia, you can go reduce your cost by fifty percent and do it somewhere else. So it's interesting to me that at an early age you. We're surrounded by all this the ability to adapt and change the diversity along the way in different states. And then you get into this data collecting phase. How did that and the Circuit City job transpire into the next couple of jobs? Were they is there a daisy chain of commonality there? Yeah. 
I was there out in Phoenix for a year. We got this call center open. And frankly, I, then I was invited to come back to the corporate headquarters, which was back in Virginia, to come and participate. They, they kind of knew that I was in the startup and early stage stuff. And they, Circuit City, believe it or not, was a, a really innovative company. One of the businesses that they were incubating at the time was a company called CarMax, which uh, still exists today and has a multi-billion dollar market cap. And I think many people forget that was actually a Circuit City brainchild. Believe it or not, we opened the first CarMax store a quarter mile from our corporate headquarters. And it was intended to follow the exact same strategy that Circuit City followed, which was these big superstores with really good customer service, really honest on the pricing and that sort of thing. So I was brought back and I was part of a startup team that launched that CarMax business. That was right up the middle for me in terms of the perfect type of opportunity for me to go get involved in at really early in my career. It was a startup within a company and that was kind of my next step. And that was the one that, that I think really helped me get rolling as it relates to what I'm doing today. But it would still be years before Mike stumbled into the world of hiring and talent acquisition. His first foray into the tech industry came during the dot-com boom. Like his father, he answered a job ad. Only this one was on Craigslist, and two weeks later left the East Coast for Silicon Valley. Before Crosscheck, Mike launched a pair of successful startups. First was the interactive e-commerce company Delivery Agent, which he sold in 2016 followed by AI-driven advertising business Connect Inc. His company's partnered with some of the biggest names in media and e-commerce, brands like HBO, NBC, Target, and Live Nation. But he wanted to tackle something bigger with his next venture, something he'd struggled with as an executive himself. He came to realize that the entire world had a hiring problem, and he was going to solve it. Let's fast forward to making it happen with Crosscheck. So I know personally, when I'm in my younger career, resumes and pushing them out, and then eventually the digital resume you know, was the tool of trade. Define what it is, the problem that you're solving, and let's talk about that lightning bolt moment when you just said, I'm going to solve this problem. Yeah, sure. I'll take us back a step to bring it full circle. One of the things I remember from my very first job out of college in Phoenix was launching a call center, one of the biggest challenges was finding talent, believe it or not. And it's a really high turnover job and it's impossible to find people. And it just, it's a tough job. And so I remember this like it was yesterday, there was a, a Sam's club that was closing. And I remember we, we caught wind of this and they were doing layoffs and shutting the whole thing down. And we went sprinting over and jumped in our cars and put flyers on the front windows of all the cars of the employees to say, hey, we're hiring on the day that they were all closing. And I was like, I was 22 and trying to figure this stuff out at the time. And so anyway, the idea that hiring and retaining talent is hard, (laughs) you learn that pretty early if you're (laughs) aware and paying attention to what's going on. Cut to 20 years later, frankly, which is when we started Crosscheck. I had been running a prior company that was a venture-backed pre-IPO enterprise in the technology space. We had grown that company to about 450 employees and about $175 million in revenue. And I had made a couple of really poor hiring decisions towards the last cycle of that company that negatively influenced our ability to fully exploit our opportunity. And we sold that company and I walked away from that experience and just said to myself, why is this so hard? Why is it so hard? The data says that 45% of our hiring decisions turn out to be mishires. Take a second on that 
and digest it. And if you realize that it's that hard, you also have to realize that it's hard not only for companies, but it's also hard for people. The people that take these jobs that don't work out, this is definitely a two-sided problem. But at the end of the day, you put yourself in the shoes of the employee that took the wrong job and comes home to tell their family that they got laid off or it didn't work out. And you put yourself in the shoes of the manager that's really doing their best to build their company. And they can't get good productivity because they keep hiring the wrong person. It's like undeniably broken. (laughs) And for as massive of an industry that it is, it hit me personally in this case because a couple of decisions, believe it or not, had a significant impact on the future of my business. But it also, as I started peeking under rocks and looking at how big of a problem this actually is, it became really clear that this one is worth fixing. This one is worth taking on. It's big enough and transformative enough to go and get smart about how to fix it. So I didn't come from the HR tech space. I'm not an HR professional. I'm an entrepreneur and a company leader kind of thing. And so it was definitely new dipping my toe in this new water that I knew nothing about. But that was the inspiration. That's how we got to Crosscheck. So I read that this is a $74 billion market opportunity. Yeah, I'm always skeptical about market opportunities and who's forecasting what. And they always seem to have their own opinions as to how they get from A to B. But yeah, there's reports out there that for sure put the industries in the tens of billions of dollars. And There's a couple of core components to this. Most of the dollars in the talent space have been on top of the funnel, i.e. the recruiting part of the equation. Think about LinkedIn. LinkedIn is a way to source talent. That's what they do for a living. And think about all the recruiters that you know. That's where the majority of the dollars have been in the business historically. But it's big, for sure, massive with the number of people. You think about the turnover numbers that I mentioned of basically almost half of new hires not working out and think about how many employed Americans there are. You just do the math and there's over 100 million people getting a new job every year. It's crazy. So it's big. Is this a a problem just in North America or is this pervasive around the world? It's pervasive. I, I don't actually have the statistics at my fingertips in terms of the failed hire rate globally, but for sure, we're currently servicing companies and outside of the US, I think a shared challenge. There's certain industries, for sure, where you'll see longer tenure and a little bit less disruption. But in large part, I think this is a global challenge. So in creating the business model, were there any particular challenges or sacrifices that you faced that you weren't expecting? It's tough when you go into, I I don't come from the HR tech space. So for me personally, this was a bit of a reinvention. My prior company was in the media and entertainment space. And so I could... I could go to Hollywood and get to anybody. But in this business, I'm like, this is a new world for me. So understanding the complexities that talent leaders are faced with. And yeah, that was a real that was a real climb for me. And it took quite a bit to understand that everyone's trying to do their best. I firmly believe that. This is a function of not having great tools. And I, I don't think even with the biases that people are expressing, I don't think this is it's unconscious for a reason. It's unconscious. <laughs> People aren't setting out to do the wrong thing. They just don't have the tools to do the right thing. And I'll give you a specific example, just very simple, simplistic example. But when we went to market initially, you know, I kind of went in with a message of you have this failed hire rate, like you're making bad hiring decisions and quickly changed the message to to away from you're making bad hiring decisions to we can collectively make better decisions. That subtle change, it seems so simple, but it is. That's what this is about for both talent and for the organizations. It's no one's fault. Let's just get it right together and everybody will win if we do so. So what size and type of companies typically would be your customer set? 
you know, early on, they were startups and early, you know, technology type companies. And now it's everybody up and down the stack. You know, it's enterprises hiring thousands and thousands of people a year. But we have a startup package for companies that are hiring 50 people a year. Right. So we're the beauty about and this is why you see so much disruptive technology in the world is that, you know, these cloud SaaS data driven platforms like ours, they just scale so easily. Right. And so it truly is not a ton of more work for us to activate an enterprise than it is for us to activate a smaller organization. So we're servicing the world where we've seen a lot of rapid growth is on the high growth tech. So there's companies like Snowflake as an example. I think Snowflake's probably one of the hotter companies of the last year. I think the most valuable company that's been created in the last decade. But you know, those types of companies, really high growth, tech oriented, that have data driven mindsets, committed to, you know, innovation. Those are companies that are right up the middle for us. But we also have You know, we've got our first restaurant group signed last week and we have a bunch of stuff happening in the healthcare space. And so there's no no vertical that we're not playing in. I think we have the largest cannabis company now running on the platform. So it's, you know, anybody trying to build great talent and build great teams is a good target for us. Is the purchase typically made, is it a boardroom decision or is it a human resources decision, combination of both? Who's the decision maker with? Yeah, it's, it depends on the size of the company, but it's usually a human resources or talent acquisition. TA is the within a human resource group. For larger enterprises, you know, they, there's a little bit more separation between those two functions, where the recruiting and TA talent acquisition groups are full standalone groups. That's typically who's making the decisions. Smaller companies, it's oftentimes a C-suite. As we've gotten a little more advanced with the analytics, and one of the things that I say to CEOs that I meet with is. You need to make quality become your new benchmark in the boardroom. And that's what you should be reporting on with your hires. You should stop reporting on quantity and and filling seats quickly because those are the things they think about. We have to start thinking about quality. And if we can change the whole conversation to be about quality, I think we will invariably layer level the playing field and we'll make it work for everyone. We're for sure with more strategic opportunities, we'll we'll pitch into the boards to the C-suite. But the actual buyer for the product will likely be talent acquisition or HR. So let's talk about the intelligence aspect. Describe the actual platform and what it allows businesses to successfully do in their hiring. Yeah, so it's there's so much talk right now about artificial intelligence. Every business has some story about how they're using artificial intelligence to help them get smarter and run better and all that good stuff. Our thing was, let's like artificial intelligence is great, but let's use human intelligence. How about we start leveraging humans? <laughs> with an end goal of making this entire process more human. So at the core of what CrossCheck does is we have trademarked a term called human intelligence hiring, which represents what we're trying to do, which is get content and data from people for people and convert that into actionable data and insights that companies can use to make sure they're making a good hiring decision. So I hate the term reference check because It's got a bad name, and I think it historically has deserved a bad name. But think about this as a completely reimagined version of a traditional reference check. It's me getting insights from Donna, who I've worked with, or my former manager, former coworker, former peer, former customer that I've sold to if I'm in software sales, whatever it might be, combining those insights with how I view myself on the same dimensions. And the output of that is this very powerful report. We call this the Crosscheck 360 that gives you a really balanced view on how does Mike view himself on all these critical dimensions, but how do the people that have worked with him view him on these dimensions? 
with an end game, trying to make sure that he's the right person for this job and this is the right job for him. And it's our real belief that if you get that right, you can fundamentally help talent find better jobs and you can help companies find better talent. But that's really what it is. It's this idea of human intelligence, which is really getting real human insights and converting them to data. So it sounds better than the Myers-Briggs test. It's different. You know, the Myers-Briggs is one dimensional, right? It's, it's answering a bunch of questions and their machine telling me it, what's unique in our scenario is I'm going to give you my perspective of myself, but then I'm also going to get the perspective of everybody around me, right? To complete the cycle. There's a great book that I've read. I, I'm blanking on the name of it. How the World Views You, I think is what it's called. And there's also some great studies that say that your friends and peers are two times better than you are at assessing a job opportunity for you. <laughs> It's fascinating stuff. So I think we're all conflicted on this. We think the things that we think, and we're obviously wrong because our fail rate is so high on our hiring decisions. So we just need help. I think both sides of the equation need help to make sure it's a good fit for them. So putting the human factor back into the the methodology, do you think that we've lost touch over the years with the human factor? Yes. I'll firmly say yes. I, I believe we have. I think that the real thing that is scary for us to admit, because I think of it or refer to as kind of carbon monoxide, which is we don't see it and smell it, but we know it's there. It's the whole unconscious bias thing. And when it gets us, it gets us, right? And, and we're still struggling with it. I mean, I wonderful that we've all as a community gotten much more engaged around a lot of social justice issues. But gosh, in hiring, it's a problem and it has been for a long time. And yeah, are people going to look at a resume and are they going to prioritize XYZ college and the fact that you look like somebody that they expect you to look like and that you worked at a company for two years and in internship in college that they expect, you know, yes, all day long that's happening and continues to happen. And it's in a big part for us that we are, we love about our, our system is we can give you a view of those people side by side and you just might end up with a much different conclusion. And not to say that either is better, but at least we want to get more data into the decision-making process so, so we level the playing field and make the right decision. So yeah, I do. I think it's gotten less, less human. I don't, think, I don't think at any fault of ours. I think it's just the trap we've fallen into. Do you feel that you neutralize or equalize things like gender and equity and age and other things that could often be profiled? Yeah, I mean, we're going to we're going to win on that. And that's the game plan here. That's the goal, right? I, we have some really interesting case studies currently. One customer in particular who started using cross-check in their process saw that they increased the percentage of candidates from underrepresented groups getting through their hiring funnel by 32%. Simply because their approach, you think you get 100 resumes and you're going to like, how do you determine who, what 10 people to go talk to? You look for some consistencies of things that you have trained yourself to think would make them a good employee. Those things don't necessarily correlate at all, right, to doing a great job. So, yeah, I do believe we're going to have a big impact on that. One of the things that we've started to do and the data that's coming out is just absolutely fascinating is we have a whole analytics module of our system that thinks about quality of hire. It's actually quite amazing that companies historically have focused on filling, you know, it's a butts and seats game as a recruiter. Very few of them are focused on how good the talent that they put into those seats actually are. As we're now producing these reports on quality of hire, we can actually show that quality of hire doesn't drop off just because you increase the diversity of hire. 
I know it sounds silly to even say it, but we can actually put data behind that so people can now put their money where their mouth is on their DNI efforts. And I do believe age, ethnicity, I think sex, I think all of those biases that for sure still exist, we're going to help bring data to the table to help you know, convince companies and lead them to try to reduce as much of that bias as they can. I think it's interesting that we got Gen Zs and then we had the millennials, the Xs and the Zs. Grew up on a much more digitized playground of information and content and access. And so now in the hiring phase of their life, it seems like this would be welcome. Like this would be something that they would adapt to much easier than the old school paper mail-in upload scenario. Yeah, they don't bat an eye. Look, this is where these things get fascinating as we... Of course, we're talking the talk of removing unconscious bias, and now we analyze our data really intently. We just finished our quarterly audit, and we see things like millennials, as an example, tend to rate themselves uh, about 8% higher than folks older than them. And the group that is most critical on a rating scale is at the other end of that spectrum. So sort of, I think it's 55 plus or something like that. So there's this really interesting curve that you can see right around that. But there, these are all the nuances of, you know, these different workforces that are entering our world. And you certainly, we want to be able to service them all and we want to be able to treat them all fairly and make a system that's fair to all. But yeah, there is a comfort level for sure with millennial workers that's different. Adoption is earlier and greater for sure. Just as Crosscheck was starting to take off, the COVID-19 pandemic took root and threatened to destroy all the momentum that Mike and his team had built. In fact, for a while, it did. There's a great book that I read called Too Big to Fail. And there's also a book that I would write called Too Small to Fail. And we were too small to fail. I would have not liked to have been a substantially bigger than us because it was painful there for sure. If you're in a, a recruiting and a hiring space when the world stopped hiring for a quarter, and the world did stop hiring for a quarter, right? I don't, no matter what data you look at it, we felt it. So we had customers that were going out of business. We had customers that were completely stopping hiring. And for sure, as we're trying to sign new business, it was a tough pitch to make to a company when they're just trying to figure out whether they're coming or going. So that Q2 last year, so from call it April to June last year, was really gnarly. And there was a lot of unknowns. And it wasn't easy for anybody. But I think we were we had a great group of investors. And we were fortunately had a really good control of our cash and of our expenses. And I hadn't grown so much like so many Silicon Valley growth companies do, where we like had to do something and that kind of deal. But we saw it every day in terms of layoffs. And it was painful to see with our customers. We did a handful of things to help. We, as an outplacement service, enabled people that had recently been outplaced to do their own cross-checks for free. So you could take your cross-check with you to your next job. So if everybody you had worked with knew you were a star, but you'd gotten laid off, you could take that content with you and share it to help you get a new job. So we did some really cool things like that. We also gave price relief to our customers that were struggling. We gave them, in many cases, two or three quarters of free service if they needed it. And there's just a lot of that resource we had to do. But we got through it. And what was the blessing side of it is that if you think about a world where you're trying to assess a hire without having met them in person, you need all the intelligence you can get your hands on. So we have a really good value proposition on that front, which is this Crosscheck 360 report. Like what better way to 
complete your picture of this individual than to, to use our report for that. That was certainly helpful. And now that these companies are coming back and they're growing, we're in a really good spot. We're growing more rapidly than we ever have. So that's exciting. What impact do you think you're having on the, not the employer, but the employee? Because I think that the employer is one side of the equation, but the employee, the one that actually gets hired, what impact do you think you're having on their lives? I do really truly believe that if we get the right person into the right job, it helps the employee. We probably don't acknowledge that enough, but it is, we know how bad it is when you end up in the wrong job. Like I said earlier, I think when you end up in the right job, it's awesome. It can be life-changing. It truly can be, it can be life-changing. And so I believe we're putting people into jobs that they're going to stay at for a long time. And I think that's an awesome goal. And when we see the data that's coming out in terms of the tenure of the hires that are run through Crosscheck versus the others, it all is pointing the right decision. So I'm proud of that. I think I'm also proud of, from a diversity perspective, it's just, look, this notion of leveling the playing field, it's not just kind of lip service for us. If you saw some of the investors that invested in our last round of financing, these are some highly influential African-American athletes who have social cause commitments around fair chance hiring and things of that nature that we were very conscious about in terms of this group of people and this idea of, Let's get this right. We provide our service for free to companies like 70 Million Jobs, which is the leading platform for anti-recidivism in the U.S. So we're trying to help people that are you know, trying to help themselves when they get out of serving their time, get a great job so they can not end up back where they were and they can start their careers over again. So I think we're going to keep doing that. We're doing some cool work with moms returning to work. We're starting to do some work around military returning to work. I think all of these groups that you know, are looking for fair chance opportunities to get jobs, I think we can help. And I think we can break the myth that you have to look a certain way to get a certain job. And we all come in all kinds of different sizes and shapes. So I believe that to be true. But it all comes back to the first piece. It comes back to the piece of if we get the right person in the right job, that person's going to be happy and they're going to have a, a better life because of it. And I, I believe that to be true. And we fixed back to the original problem. We fixed the 45% of these being failed hires within the first 18 months. If we can fix that by 10%, we'll impact 5 million people's lives a year. And I think that's a good thing. I want to talk a little bit about, you mentioned earlier, you were 12 years old, you were an entrepreneur, and you were selling berries. Imagine if you had the data that you can collect and have today. How do you think you would have been able to leverage that? You probably have created a mini franchise. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you how I would have used that data because I was scrapping together tennis ball cans and putting the berries in the cans. And I realized it took me about a week where I realized that that was killing the berries because it had all the yellow fuzz from the tennis ball can. So that was a horrible play. And I could have probably gotten ahead of that a heck of a lot quicker. There's so much stuff. I would love to be 12 right now. Oh, my gosh. Just there's so much cool tools at our disposal and there's no excuses. Not that there ever are excuses, but there's no excuses to go and get creative and, and figure out how to use a GPS tool to position a higher likelihood buyer of my berries at that time. It would have been a good start. I would have focused on a on an older demographic that couldn't make it to the grocery store probably. But no, I love it. I think it's a great, great question. There's an endless number of answers now. What have you learned now? You know, you've had the business for a while that you wish you knew before you started. It's a big journey. Yeah. Now you learn about yourself so much. And I think one of the things that I for sure learned is just in eating my own dog food is just how important people are and just how important 
people are to your success. And I think earlier in my career, I'd probably taken that for granted. And my last company was growing so rapidly. I just was so focused on the end game that I, I don't know that I was necessarily as measured and thoughtful about that as I am today. And I know that people can make it, that they can break it, but they can for sure make it. So I'm, I'm really proud of the team we have. I mean, the, the diversity in our team, and we've made that a priority. That's not lip service for us. 55% of our U.S. team is female, 33% is non-white, and we're doing our best at our size to make sure that we're working that and we will continue to. But I think that is a thing. I think the other just business lesson that, that I learned is just fail fast. One of the things in a high-growth startup is you can't afford to sit around with a bad idea too long. So that is something that comes from age and a little bit of wisdom, which is fail fast and make sure that you have the ability to identify signal. And if the signal says, hey, this product or feature is not going to be great, okay, I got it, move quickly. Those are the two things for me is, uh, that are probably as, in, as important as anything. This year, though, has taught us all. I think, gosh, I've been just so impressed by how absolutely tough all of us are and how everybody's persevered. I just, it's, we take it for granted. I was looking back recently at my board meeting from my May board meeting a year ago. And I couldn't help the doom and gloom and the unknown and all the stuff we were talking about then and 11 months ago. We just can't forget that. I think that's part of it, too. I think we just how tough our whole community is and, and how, how we all just kind of grinded through this thing. I think it was also a learning for me, for sure, in the last year. Absolutely. So I know a lot of companies have, they call chief culture officer or they create the ones that make sure the jelly beans and the bagels are in. And there has to be more than that. And so what I love about what you're doing in your platform is you're actually not just humanizing and bringing the intelligence, but you're humanizing and equalizing the culture as well. So as we move from working from home, or, and perhaps some companies will, will continue to work from home, how do you think that you're going to change the culture within the companies even further? Don't take for granted that first piece, because we have a client, very large, multi-billion dollar client that has been remote first from their inception. So this, they just happen to be, you know, you'll see some of those around the world nowadays, but they're remote first. And one of the things that the data showed with them is that when they were hiring employees into their company, if the employee was seeking social connection within the organization, they had a high likelihood of not lasting. If you were looking to go out for beers or to a barbecue with the people at your office, that was not the company for you, but it took us a, a bunch of cycles to figure that out. And I think if you push that forward and think about the kids that are out of college right now, starting their first job and they're doing it from their parents' basement or whatever that is, versus you're going into San Francisco and you're going out with friends out and whatever you do, and that whole social inclusion thing. I think this is a thing we have to just be so aware of and it's not just the jelly beans and it's not just the welcome kit with the cool hoodie and the cool thing it's this is real and so we have to be hyper aware at keeping folks engaged and engaged in a real and meaningful fashion i just think that's the challenge in front of all of us and yeah and i think chief culture officers are, are they're thinking about that i had another interesting one that i have gotten feedback from a couple of other ceos larger companies where they're making rules where the concept of a hybrid meeting i.e. Donna and Mike are together, but Joe and Mary are not, that everybody has to be on their own machines because there's a perception of imbalance if you and I are together to the folks that are not. So even if we're in the same office, 
They want to sit in our separate rooms. So these like new these very subtle nuances, but you I get it. I can imagine that if there's 10 people on the call and there's so there's these things that we're going to have to all work through. And I think there's just a lot still to be figured out, uh, whether it's the onboarding piece that I mentioned earlier, whether it's the inclusion as we go piece, and how do you make sure that you're keeping people engaged, whether it's the something as simple as how do we run our meetings, right, in this hybrid work environment. I think there's we're still in the first inning of so much of that, is my real opinion. So the data that you do collect is owned by the customer, or is that data then shared and populated into this big, and then Nelson's writing data type of pool? One thing that's important too, so we are really cautious about the term rating and we don't give scores on people. Everything we provide is an average. So we we are very conscious of to the company saying, hey, we're not going to tell you who to hire. That's not our job, but we're going to give you data that you can then use to make a decision to hire. So we actually... We'll never compare candidates outside of a company against another company. Everything is done within your four walls of your company, which makes it, it's not a Nielsen or an Experian or a score, like a credit score. And we don't want any part of that. We think that actually takes away the authenticity of the process and the leveling of the playing field when we start to do that. But for sure, we give the averages. The data is actually owned by the candidate, believe it or not. The candidate can at any time request that we delete their cross-check. That said, they can't see their cross-check because it has to be anonymized because that's the commitment to the reference giver, if you will. But technically speaking, the candidate controls it. The company does not control it and own it, and we don't control it and own it. The candidate owns owns their data, and they can request it to be deleted whenever they want to. But more importantly, which is where the value prop is, they can reuse it. And that's what we're seeing more and more as people are moving from one opportunity to the next, especially in the gig economy. You know, you just might be a person that is working a three-month stint at various places. You don't want to have to go back through your cross-check each time. So it's really convenient for you to repurpose it. So we have a whole concept of portability. We have a thing called the cross-check locker, which enables the candidate to take all this stuff with them. You know, we, we're, we're doing some really cool things on that too, long-term. We actually think that, think about performance reviews at companies. You leave a company, you tend to leave your performance reviews behind. And if you've kicked butt for the last three years, and how do you share that with your new company? So we're working on some things that will enable us to make those performance reviews portable with you in a similar concept. So we have a real vision on that, that the candidate needs to have control and that you need to be able to you know, use these things that they've developed over time to help get the next opportunity. Well, and I'm fascinated. I, I think you're definitely going to change how not just employer, but employee candidates look at their career launchpad and their career as it evolves. The next generation certainly, I think, is going to benefit and the investments that you have, I think, are really unique. You've tapped into a different investment community, not your typical venture community, but people who really have empathy and care about the next generation and the future and how we work. But I also love the privacy component that you bring it to as well, is that this some of the thumbprint, it's my own personal thumbprint in my career. Let's steal that from you. You might see that on the website soon. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it does. It truly does create a unique thumbprint for every single candidate and every single individual in the world. I love it. That was Mike Fitzsimmons. He told me that CrossCheck is now focused on products that will help companies perfect the art of remote hiring. One of the effects of the pandemic has been companies hiring employees based on little more than a Zoom call. Crosscheck is adding to its data pool personal information like hobbies and interests. 
or even things you don't like to help make hiring and onboarding more personal for the growing number of work from home hires. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood, and all episodes are written and developed by Jack Buer. Our show coordinator is Deanna Morency, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab.